This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We're murderers, Francis. No, we're not. We're survivors. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. You can't parse this. It's all or nothing. That's not how politics works. But it's how revolution works. On House of Cards, not your average recap show. I'd like to alert sensitive listeners that this episode includes some non-public radio language and imagery. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media and also of this On House of Cards podcast. This one is devoted to episode six, which we're calling Volkov Bayatza Vlesnichadit, which means if you're scared of the wolves, don't go to the woods. I'm joined by Nina Khrushchava, professor of international affairs at the New School and author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. Welcome, Nina. Thank you. I'm also joined by Dan Savage, author of the relationship and sex advice column Savage Love and host of the weekly podcast also called Savage Love and so much more. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So in this episode, there's a lot of ground that gets covered, but most important for our discussion, we follow the Underwoods to Moscow. So let's begin with the Underwoods aboard Air Force One, en route to retrieve Michael Corrigan, the American LGBT rights activist, imprisoned for protesting Petrov's anti-gay laws. Now, while they're on board, we get an idea of their plans, and here we have a clip. Kathy emailed me the statement. I got the Kremlin to tone down the language. You think Corrigan will say it? I'm sure he'll hate every word, but if it means coming home... Well, the only reason that Petrov is considering this is because we have levers in the UN. You're both confident that this is rock solid? If Petrov doesn't cooperate, the Secretary General will call an emergency session the moment we land in the States. Let's hope we don't have to play that card. Just don't give too much away. Oh, listen, he's been marginalized in the Security Council. He's detaining an American citizen. He wants to wash his hands up. I think we'll find that we're dealing with a much more reasonable man than the one that visited Washington. We fly back with a peacekeeping deal and Corrigan, lemons to lemonade. I think we should give Corrigan our suite on the way back, give him some privacy from the press. That's a good idea. Have you slept at all? No. Eaten anything? Not yet. Here. Come see this. They're gazing at the northern lights in a rare, non-political moment. Does it convince you that there's some actual love left in this union? Well, I've never really seen Frank and Claire as being like a love match. This is a power couple. They're greater than the sum of their parts, and that's what they're in love with. They're in love in what they can do together. But you don't get the sense, uh, observing this relationship over the three seasons, that this is based on passionate, romantic, particularly monogamous ideals about love at all. You don't get the sense that they're turned on by each other? Power is the ultimate aphrodisiac, as Henry Kissinger says. And (laughs) when they are turned on by each other, it's because power is in the room. It's almost always, even if it's just the two of them being romantic or sexual, it's kind of always a three-way because power is the third person in the room that arouses (laughs) them. 
and we've already experienced Frank and Claire's uh, separate bedrooms. And so sometimes, as Dan says, they're being aroused by power in particularly successful moments of their deception of the world. And so they may or may not want to sleep together. But most of the time, I think it's enough for them to have an orgasm just being powerful. <laughs> and they have, they have erotic moments in this show that unpack their connection, even their erotic connection, where there's no sex. I think of one moment when Claire was talking about a rival of theirs that they were moving to destroy, and Claire paused and said, don't just destroy him, make him suffer. Right. And the lights went on in Frank's eyes. You could see the chub, you know, growing in his <laughs> pants at that moment. And there was, it wasn't a sex scene, but that was sex for Frank and Claire. <laughs> Okay, now they're landing in Moscow. They're greeted with flowers and photographers. And Petrov, who, as predicted, seems more tractable than he was the last time we saw him. And as Frank and Petrov head to his office, Petrov's chief of staff takes Claire to Michael's cell, where she tells him they're going to get him out. But there will be a joint press conference. The agreement asks that you make a brief statement. I'm sorry, um, the type is too small and I don't have glasses. We offered glasses to Mr. Carey. They did. Uh, mine broke during the arrest. The other inmates don't get glasses. I didn't want special treatment. We provide glasses to anyone who needs them, Russian or American. That is a lie. I will read it. It says, I, Michael Corrigan, apologize to the citizens of the Russian Federation for breaking your laws. I regret my part in exposing minors to non-traditional sexual attitudes. I am grateful to President Petrov for the clemency my release demonstrates. Okay, so there seems to be an obvious parallel between this law and Putin's 2013 law banning homosexual propaganda. Is the gay propaganda law barbaric? Yes. Of course it is. But religion, tradition, for most of my people, it's in their bones. This law was passed for them. I have to represent my people the same way you do. Nina, what's the reality of these laws in Russia? Also, isn't it a little patronizing towards the Russians? Well, look, I mean, I'm the wrong person to ask because I wrote a book which is called The Gulag of the Russian Mind. <laughs> Uh, so that's exactly the argument uh -huh. that I'm making is that, you know, we, we as Russians regrettably don't need barbed wire to keep us in check. We'll just build it all on our own. I actually know people who were writing that law, and they were very sheepish about doing that because they kept saying, we don't want to do it. I mean, there's no point of doing it. I mean, really? let gays be gays. But there is this idea that Russia has to create the whole formula of uh, traditional values so it can lead other countries that have problems with Western decadence, as they say. And so Russia becomes the West for non-West. Well, now I would just jump in and say there's also classic scapegoating of a vulnerable minority during a time of economic contraction when protests against Putin were rising. This law was suddenly on the table. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we've seen in Nigeria, what we've seen in Russia with the pushing of these laws, beating up fags and dykes and queers and trans people is a really easy way to assert your moral superiority over the West. Whatever else you're failing at, whatever else you, your country isn't providing to the citizens, including freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, free elections, at least you are not letting faggots get married. We're better than France, better than the UK, better than the United States, better than Canada, all of these places that are arguably freer uh, and safer places because we're beating up queer people. 
So this is one of those rare cases throughout the course of this podcast so far where both of our guests are in agreement that this whole scenario is actually plausible. It's not just plausible. This is ripped from the headlines. This is law and Mm -hmm. order shit. There hasn't been the prospect of a 15-year prison term, but people have been tried and prosecuted based on these laws. And it's created a climate of fear and a climate of violent persecution because the police are looking the other way as people get assaulted. You've had people uploading videos of themselves kidnapping and assaulting gays and lesbians, particularly young gay men, and uploading the videos without any fear of prosecution because it is open season on queer people in Russia because of these laws. It is an exaggerated case. That doesn't mean that it cannot happen. But in Russia, this is just one of the issues because the same Mm -hmm. thing happens from people in the Caucasus. I mean, they're guilty just because they don't look white enough. Sometimes I speak English on a Moscow subway and I'm screamed at Americans go home. The atmosphere of lawlessness that Putin created is exactly that. You can be punished for anything that some thug on the street does not like. The disconnect between law and order that Putin is trying to create, that sort of strong persona and complete lawlessness that you encounter in the street, Mm -hmm. that actually something that I wish House of Cards would take on because (laughs) it would be a more interesting episode than just regurgitating various formulas of how Americans hate the Russians. (laughs) I would just add that it is an exaggeration, I think, to, you know, have this guy in prison and have it be this international incident. Western LGBT civil rights activists have gone to Russia. Dan Choi, Peter Tatchell participated in gay pride demonstrations. The law has effectively made it illegal to be out because any kid anywhere might encounter evidence that there are people who aren't straight, and that's gay propaganda, beaten bloody in the streets on videotape and then arrested and then expelled, not imprisoned. So that's the exaggeration, but it's not an exaggeration to say that Western LGBT activists have (laughs) been brutally treated in Russia. Claire is... Speaking alone with Corrigan now, she's pushing him to go along with the statement, and he says that he won't. You're going to have to drag me out of here because I'm not giving that statement. It's just words. Words you can disown the moment you're back on U.S. soil. Petra's gay propaganda law? That's just words, too. What I found oddest about this episode, it really made me realize something about the whole series, there are no gay people in this Washington, D.C. This is a Democratic president. We're meeting all these Democratic congressmen and congresswomen, and there are no gay people. Well, there's pretty much only one black guy. Yeah, that too. That too, by the way. (laughs) To meet a gay person in the House of Cards universe, we have to go to a prison in Moscow? There are none in D.C.? It's exactly true. When I was watching that, it was like, oh, you're rich coming from you that suddenly you say, well, of course you can disown those words. But I must say, when she suddenly felt ethical and went against the diplomatic solution that they needed for exactly that orgasmic power that they both share... (laughs) totally lost me because I so didn't believe her. But it was one of those Hollywood moments when their assholes, like Putin or Petrov, they are still much worse than our assholes. And for me, that was a (laughs) moment of sheer, sheer Hollywood propaganda. When every character is a negative one, we still find somewhere on a different continent somebody who is a bigger bastard than our own. It kind of reminds me of that old trope of Claire's uh, scene at the end there where she says shame on you. It's that old Washington movie trope where the politician's going to give a speech and then he'll go, 
I'm not going to give that speech. Right. I'm going to speak from my heart and this kind of thing. And you've seen it so often. And know? I didn't buy it. Well, yeah. But when it is in the House of Cards, it's ridiculous because the House of Cards <laughs> supposedly debunks all this kind of formulas and yet in a remarkable cliche way, it just then surrenders to the formula just to prove that Americans are still better than anybody else. <laughs> And it's kind of insulting. Absolutely. Like we're, going, we're going to brandish our more progressive attitudes about gay people by trotting this guy out and then, you know, displaying our liberal bona fides by shoving these pretty words into Claire's mouth and then go back to this show where there are no gay people. So Absolutely. it's really this kind of tokenism in the way the script has been written and the show has been directed. It was just very 30s, 40s, 50s melodrama that the faggot dies at the end. That's like a line out of Boys in the Band and Sister George. Yeah, but he didn't die because he was depressed or full of self-loathing or lonely or any of those things. I mean, when I contrast his death with Congressman Russo, Mm -hmm. you know, this guy had some working class principles, but he lost them agonizingly bit by bit. He died of his own weakness. The argument here and the argument that is made by Claire later and countered by Frank, is that this character, Michael Corrigan, died from strength. It didn't read that way to me. What Claire said is that he did not have a choice if he was going to stick to his principles. You don't buy that? I don't. I don't. Oh, come on. I know I've convinced you. (laughs) No, actually, you didn't didn't convince me either. (laughs) You know, his marriage is a sham, but his politics aren't. And just thinking as a political queer, I launched the Vodka Boycott in the United States to create attention and focus on the anti-LGBT laws in Russia. And, you know, the boycott was very successful in garnering that attention that convinced people that people outside the country were paying attention, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm like in that LGBT activist space. And he would know that he's a much bigger problem sitting in that prison Mm. than he is dying in that prison. And so if he really has the courage of his convictions, if he's really you know, willing to sacrifice his life for this cause, the truthful, honest activist, not just like, let's drag out a gay character and get rid of him before the end of the episode, uh, the real activist thing to do would be to leave him there, to sit there. That's the choice that would have made logical sense, not drama queen bullshit, suicide hanging. It was a piano falling down the stairs. It was that many false notes fine, we've advanced, it's 21st century, so the gay man dies heroically, he still dies. So we're still upholding to the same kind of Hollywood cliche formulas of the 20s and the 30s mm-hmm. and the 50s, because it is, I mean, you know what the first lady who missed somebody committing suicide in the room? I have to admit. <laughs> she's not there to sleep, to take a nap. I mean, my God. And when she became moral at the end, that was even worse. I'm not saying you can't have a gay person in a piece of fiction or a work of art commit suicide without, you know, stopping on that 20s, 30s trope. But when you have two people who are gay in your entire fictional universe and one of them commits suicide, you have a problem. This is on House of Cards. We'll hear more from Nina Kustrova and Dan Savage in a moment. Let me ask you about whether you found this at all compelling. Somewhere along the line, Claire and Michael get to talking about marriage, and he tells the story about how he went to a conference on pollution, and he fell in love with the speaker, John Pasternak, his future husband. 21 years. Only been married for five because, well, we couldn't earlier. Francis and I just celebrated 28. Over half your life. 
That's true. I haven't even thought about that. You were young. Twenty-two. You ever regret it? No, no. I love Francis. Now more than ever. I regret it. Committing to someone before I even knew who I was. Stupid. Why? Because all I've ever done is hurt him. Uh, kept him in my shadow, cheated on him, you name it. Well, it's the history that counts, not the other things, right? That's true. No substitute for history. But it's unfair to him. I don't believe in fairness. I don't think you do either, even though you fight for it. And I don't believe you love your husband more than ever. How could you possibly know? Takes one to know one. John and I haven't slept with each other in almost two years. We don't even sleep in the same bedroom. We've talked about separating, but we never follow through. It just seems wrong to fight this hard for marriage equality and then get divorced. Bad for business. Honestly, I don't think it's how humans are built to be with each other for 50 years. You don't have that option either, do you? How do you mean? But if you wanted something else, that would be really bad for business. Don't you think it's interesting about how she's confronted with a kind of doppelganger? I, I, I do like that scene. So there were as many false notes as a piano falling down the stairs in the episode, but there were a couple of unfalse notes. And I think that was one of them, that Clara saw herself reflected in this relationship. And I do agree that it's a lie to say you never regret it. I think any relationship long-term involves some tumult and betrayals and forgivenesses, and there's always regret. I love that Stephen Sondheim song, if I can loop in another work of art. Um, <laughs> from Company, where one character asks, are you ever sorry you got married? And his response is, you're always sorry and you're always grateful. Mm-hmm. And that's the right answer to, do you ever regret it? Like, yeah, sure, sometimes I regret it and sometimes I don't. Most of the times I don't, and so we stay married. And I think that's the adult response. But she's the first lady. She can't risk that kind of honesty. She, as far as she knows, he's coming home and going to be wandering the streets. And if she tells him the truth about her marriage at that moment, that could be very damaging to them. If she knows the truth about her marriage. Well, she knows the truth about her marriage. I, I think it's a real bummer for your podcast because I agree with Dan again. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Very unfortunate. That's great. But Michael does seem like a much more authentic character because we already know that she's dishonest. We already know she says things for the sake of saying them. And so this whole conversation, at least the way I read it, and I've been around politics a bit, so I (laughs) kind of know that politicians lie. And so it's hard to imagine that any of the words that she's saying are the ones that are not supposed to elicit a certain response from him. But I also think that probably at one moment she may have been taken aback because it made her think about her own life for a second. Not that she's going to change it. She's going to go on and pretend that, you know, she and Frank just live happily ever after. I think there could have been a moment there where Claire jumped in and said, you idiot. You know what? Frank and I are a power couple. This is what our marriage is about. This is what we share. This is our connection. You and your husband can have that too. And it's just as valid as anyone else's marriage. Because sexual passion as the only yardstick, the only measure of the validity of a marriage is a really precarious one because that always drains away in the end. And what are you left with? She and Frank have this simpatico sort of relationship. They have respect. I love it when she says it's about respect. They do respect each other. Yeah. And she could have, like at that moment, become a power couple marriage counselor and been like, all right, your marriage isn't about sex. It's about power. It's about position. It's about effectiveness. It's about 
Why isn't that a marriage too? I think her respect has shifted at this moment. I think that she's found someone else to idolize, at least for a little while. The great conflagration between Frank and Claire comes later. But it was interesting that, you know, even as she's there mouthing these pieties, tempting him with the apple like Eve, the metaphorical apple here being the Underwood real politique that they practice, she still seems to be giving way somehow. I don't know. Or maybe the writer's desire to show politicians better than they really are. (laughs) Because she's there on a clear mission, and suddenly I'm just turning around and going to become a really very good person. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who works in television should have to watch all of Seinfeld. And I know it doesn't apply (laughs) to all shows. But people people don't change. And I love that nobody hugs, nobody learns. Maxim... Sometimes it seems like people who create characters that we have to live with for a long time think the audience wants these people to become better people than they are when what we fell in love with was the shitty person who maybe made us feel a little bit better about ourselves. And so people like dig their way out of being shitty and it's less interesting television, less compelling. Any character in the series you like? I think my favorite is David Axelrod. He's in the show, right? (laughs) Or have I mixed him up? I like Petrov. I think (laughs) Petrov is a very compelling character. How close is Petrov to Putin? Well, he's tall. Petrov is tall. So that makes him very unclose to Putin. Uh, But in other terms, I mean, he's probably more thuggish than Putin. On the other hand, Putin could be pretty thuggish. The lines he delivers are very Putin-esque, which I find interesting. And uh, as all in Hollywood or in movies generally, he's quite exaggerated. But so far as a character, I think as a, as a bad Russian president of which Hollywood has quite a number, I think he does pretty well. Nina, have you heard of any reaction in Russia to this series? It was actually very interesting. I mean, a lot of people are obsessed with it because America is always superior and, of course, Americans are always better than anybody else. So this is an unusual series because, oh, look, we always knew that Americans are liars and cheaters. And <laughs> are they regarding this as a documentary? Oh, absolutely. Uh, as Seriously? Liars. Well, not, but suddenly Americans actually look at themselves with uh, not through the rose glasses and don't think of themselves as great victors and better than anybody else. So there was a lot of response and people got obsessed and they're binge-watching it at all times, of course, without paying for it a cent, as they normally do. But those particular scenes with Petrov was really quite interesting because, look, we've gotten used to being such villains in Hollywood. Even when we were not villains in the 90s, we were still villainized. I mean, we're, you know, let's face it, we're the best of enemies there is. (laughs) Uh, White, uh, non-threatening, at least not until recently. But Petrov was, as a character, also very compelling. And so there was a lot of studies of, you know, Petrov is tall and therefore he cannot be Putin. And suddenly Russians, who have very artistic and elevated mind in this sense, suddenly they just become statisticians. It's like, oh, well, you know, let's just measure it up. And so there's a lot of debate going on. You mean there is actual debate in Russia as to whether Petrov is based on Oh my God, and how. (laughs) Oh, come on. And there were articles written about, well, I mean, he's clearly based on Putin. But but how accurate. How inaccurate it is. And even I, one time, kind of participated in that discussion and wrote an article myself saying, well, when on earth you look at Hollywood for factual representation? I was attacked for that, too, because I should be defending Mother Russia at all times. (laughs) And every time when when the new scene or in a new episode with Petrov and it appears there's a whole slew of conversation. But in some ways something North Korea go 
going on as well. So look at us. We are that important. Even badly, we're still presented for these Americans. They just cannot live without us. Any idea of who Frank Underwood might be based on in Russia? All of them. All American presidents. All of them, exactly. I think all politicians (laughs) all over the world will be Frank Underwood. I'm going to end on one last soundbite. We're murderers, Francis. No, we're not. We're survivors. If we can't show some respect for one brave man and still accomplish what we set out to do, then I'm disappointed in both of us. I should have never made you ambassador. I should have never made you president. I like that line because it really captures the power of the wife in that kind of power couple relationship. She has a finger on basically a self-destruct button at all times. If she walks, if she divorces, if she tells the truth in public, if she makes a scene or a scandal, she can end his political career. It's like Russia and the United States during the Cold War. It's a relationship built on mutual assured destruction. Is this the most recent episode you've seen in House of Cards? I have two more to watch. Don't give it away. But you're going to stay with it, even though this episode kind of pissed you off. Yeah, I'm going to stick with it through the end of the season. But if it continues to drift in this direction of like melodrama and liberal posturing, you know, the, jumping way back, that scene, you know, with Claire standing up to uh, uh, Petrov, as a viewer, I find that annoying because it's pandering and it's assuming I'm, you know, this liberal bag of slop who wants to see my liberal fantasies enacted on television. You'd prefer a kind of Jacobean tragedy where everyone schemes and stabs each other and or Shakespearean you know when people say who Frank Underwood is based on Richard III is who Frank Underwood is based on and in fact a lot of people who saw Kevin Spacey's performance as Richard III said that there is quite a bit of resonance there sort of Richard III without the limp and with a southern accent and killing journalists instead of nephews (laughs) exactly I want to thank you both so much Thank you. Thank you. It was really fun. Nina Khrushcheva is a professor of international affairs at the New School and author of The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And Dan Savage is author of the relationship and sex advice column, Savage Love, and the host of the weekly podcast, also called Savage Love. On House of Cards is produced by Kimmy Regler with help from Claire Tennisgetter and edited by me. Katja Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. You can subscribe to this podcast and On the Media on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you go to iTunes, leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out. And follow us on Twitter at On the Media. On our next episode, former Clinton speechwriter Michael Waldman and former White House counsel for President Nixon John Dean on natural disasters and presidential showdowns, wherein Dean recalls his own bout with Nixon. And it flashed through my mind at that time. I said, I'm dealing with the leader of the Western world who's not nearly as tough as he pretends to be. 